0: Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I'm your host, Conrad Franz, joined, as always, by Dimitri Kalyagin. We have a great show set up for you today. It's been a little bit, you know, maybe our second longest hiatus since we started the show, but, you know, I've been away. I'm sure people have some questions, so, you know, we'll have a place to answer all of those. But until that happens, you know, we're back with the news covering World War III, and it keeps lurching on, it keeps spreading to new fronts, and things keep happening that are very much in our wheelhouse to talk about. So, Dimitri, how are you doing?
1: Doing great, Conrad. I'm happy to be back and happy to discuss certain events with you. And fortunately for the viewers here, there's definitely a lot going on. And, you know, some things are edifying, some are definitely horrifying, and other things definitely really pushing our intellectual boundaries to sort of understand exactly what's happening in all of these various events around the world I think there's uh, certainly the blocks on the chessboard are definitely moving and all the pieces are kind of coming into some sort of mosaic which is making a bit more sense now but still um, you know new fronts are opening up and as we'll, as we're looking at the map right now it it does appear like the intensity is being scaled up by certain powers around the world uh, you know leading to a certain conclusion.
0: No, it's true. And of course, we have Lloyd Austin talking about potential war with Russia as Ukraine totally fails. We have Israel expanding its operations across the West Bank, Lebanon, the entirety of Gaza. It's no longer just a siege of Gaza City. So we're going to get into all of that. But of course, if you've been following me on social media, whether it's on X or on Telegram or other things, you've seen that I happen to have just been in Moscow. And this episode will not be a recounting of my Incredible trip to the Third Rome, but if you want to ask about that, if you want to ask anything else towards me and Dimitri, check out Uh, WorldWarNow.co, WorldWarNow.substack. We have that new URL as well, in case anybody noticed. But be sure to ask a question on our supporter-exclusive Q&A. If you're not already a supporter, you can start the free trial and ask a question and then cancel if you don't want to keep supporting us. But if you do keep supporting us, you get access to all of the Ether Hour episodes and whatnot and can ask us questions in every Q&A. So go check that out. Ask us a question. That'll be our next Ether Hour that will answer all of that. And I'll tell you all about my insane, incredible trip to to Russia. So with all of that being said, let's hop right into it. Obviously, we're going to dive back into Hamas, Israel, Gaza, the Holy Land. Of course, it is still the hottest front right now as the Ukraine front line appears to be more or less, you know, stagnant as the Russians continue their slow lurch forward. But of course, Khan Yunis, you know, the southern cities of Gaza since our last show, those have been totally invaded. You know, the The attempt at this just being an occupation of the north, that's what the Israelis kind of said, that's not going to happen. Netanyahu has basically said that a full military imposition of a new form of government an occupation government led by Israel will be imposed on the Gaza Strip. And of course, this is not what any of these Arab countries want, but at the same time, it's only the Houthis that are, again, going all out. We're going to talk about them in a second. But of course, the West Bank and southern Lebanon are also heating up. Dimitri, as we've seen uh, certain Hezbollah and other resistance leaders have been killed in airstrikes at their own homes in southern Lebanon, the West Bank. Uh, we've seen ground operations, missile strikes despite the fact that they're extremely minimal Hamas related, you know, entities in the West Bank. And so this is all very again, the US seems to be willing to completely support Israel. Uh, Biden declared himself a Zionist in this recent talk and even though the US seems to be you know, a bit put out with Israel's indiscriminate shelling and killing of civilians. It's like over 10,000 children under 18s now have been killed in Gaza. So the U.S. has obviously recognizes it's losing face on the world stage by giving this carte blanche, you know, blank check to Israel to do this. But, you know, Netanyahu has the, I guess, has the balls to respond to Biden by saying, no, you guys dropped the nuclear bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, so we can kill as many civilians as we want in Gaza, which, you know, I'm not saying I supported the use of the atom bomb in in World War II and whatnot, but I still don't think that's a particularly apt comparison, considering that that bomb was dropped at the end of an actual, you know, conflict with millions and millions of dead across all sorts of countries, meanwhile. You know, this is just in the midst of October 7th, which, again, we're still disputing how many of the civilians on October 7th were even actually killed by Hamas or Israeli-friendly fire or any of these other things. So this is, of course, still being adjudicated in the court of public opinion around the world. But it seems that, effectively, everybody outside of America recognizes that Israel is just, you know, the tail wagging the United States dog. And here in America, we're convinced that, I guess, somehow we have Israel on a leash, which is total nonsense.
1: Yeah, that's right, and you know, as you mentioned, in the court of public opinion, and even in the court of journalism itself, the actual losses on the ground are still, as you said, uh, they still don't make entirely much sense to us, and that's only because Israel has been indiscriminately bombing civilian targets for, well, you can say the last two months now, because we are reaching almost into that third month now, starting January in the new year, so this it'll be it would be three months, and it's almost two and a half months now since the beginning of this conflict, but. In terms of actual professional journalists keeping track of the losses throughout Gaza and the Gaza Strip, all four journalists, three of them have disappeared which could mean either they've been captured by the IDF or they've been killed in one of the random, seemingly random bombings by the IDF. And one of them has definitely confirmed to have died, who have kept very careful statistics of the injured people, as well as those who have passed away, including the children along the Gaza Strip from various sources. So they've been compiling this information for you know reasons of posterity and for their own Palestinian people. And these are independent journalists too. So again, you know, these sort of events take place and they make you question exactly What makes this conflict different from all the ones around the world? Well, the answer is very simple for our viewers. It's just that this conflict here involves civilians more than, say, the conflict in Ukraine, where we don't see massive cities being sieged. We don't even even the siege of Mariupol is very different to the siege of Gaza City, which the Israelis have almost completely taken over. It's definitely surrounded. But the, you know, as you mentioned, like Gaza City at the moment still stands somewhat free from complete Israeli takeover, but definitely a a large portion of it has been surrounded by Israeli mechanized forces. And Israel is not really releasing statistics on how many tanks or how many mechanized units they've lost, but we're probably looking in somewhere in the 100s, like 200, 300 tanks and other vehicles that they have probably lost by now to Hamas. Um, In terms of losses on the Hamas side, Hamas, again, isn't reporting too much, but Israel is passing on that they have killed significant Hamas leadership figures who, you know, most of these men have appeared in masks in some of the videos, giving speeches. Um, we won't go over the list of names of the potential of, of those killed only because it could be Israeli disinformation as well as Hamas won't necessarily be um, really uh, providing any information to the sort because again, it's an active, you know, it's an active war field or, you know, this is sort of, this information is only adding to morale of either side. So again, very controversial information there. But, that, but yeah, Israel is reaching now south so to the southern Gaza Strip, as we mentioned, the strategy was, of course, to divide and conquer. And now that they're somewhat done of Gaza City, and Gaza City is well-surrounded and partially occupied, they can now move down into Khan Yunus, and Khan Yunus itself is being bombed. Now it's being invaded with boots on the ground. And Khan Yunus, after Khan Yunus, the only real place the Gazan refugees in the south can go is probably um, Rafa, just on the border of Egypt. And so again, it's almost this like biblical story where it's like the, uh, you know, the infant Christ with Mary and Joseph, they actually have to escape from, from Nazareth, from Bethlehem, and they have to go south into Egypt. And it's almost like these refugees as well. Then they're, they're not running from the wrath of Herod, but they're running from the wrath of Netanyahu further south. And so it is very concerning. And the West Bank, again, these places like Bethlehem, Nazareth, they are also being targeted, as you said, by the Israeli IDF. There are civilians being you know, persecuted. Their homes are being raided for posting pro-Palestinian materials online. We've been seeing that for the last several weeks. So nobody's really safe, even civilians in sort of, you can say, relatively peaceful areas of the West Bank. And again, the conflict expands further north into southern Lebanon, where the Lebanese government, although approached by official, you know, US officials, officials from even, shall we say, Israel-friendly Arabic states, who are somewhat still allied in this, you know, they're still shipping goods to Israel, things like that, Saudi Arabia, these sort of countries, which have taken on a position of this partial neutrality, they've approached Lebanon to kind of stay out of it or to try and pull Hezbollah back. But again, Nasrallah and Hezbollah do not answer to these international, I guess, Arabic bodies. They they're kind of on their own, and Nasrallah has kind of stood on his word. So he continues to fight Israel in that Le- Lebanon strip. they still, you know, Hezbollah is still flying drones. They're still firing, uh, still firing anti-air m- missiles at planes that fly over southern Lebanon. So Israel is still very much held in this like tense position up north. So they're not really taking their finger off the trigger on that end.
0: Yeah, And John Kirby, you know, one of the chief spokespersons for the National Security Council in America, he said, we are concerned about the worsening situation in northern Lebanon, and we do not want the conflict to spread to Lebanon. But Uh, Israel doesn't seem interested in listening to that. Israel seems perfectly willing to drag Lebanon, Syria. I mean, even Iran into this because, as we said, Biden declared himself a Zionist. Lloyd Austin still seems distracted with Ukraine. So that just leaves Biden and Blinken as Mm -hmm. the ones handling Israel. And we know Blinken handles Israel not as the Secretary of State, but as a Jew. So that's basically a total dub for whatever Israel wants to do. And now Israel seems convinced. That uh, if Iran gets involved, you know, that means the U.S. will launch missiles and send planes from the Gerald Ford and the Eisenhower and these other, uh, you know, entities that they have in the region to to both deter Israel's enemies from going all in and using their massive weapon supplies and to show them that when you do go in, if you do go in, you know, whatever happens, we will, you know, do our best to reduce you to rubble and make you look like Gaza. So. It's a big, you know, it's a big question mark, obviously, and that leads us into the Houthis, of course, who are the only ones that seem to be, not, I guess, being deterred by the deterrence that the U.S. has put in place, as they have effectively declared their own personal blockade of Israel, effectively stopping all food, any weapon shipments, any other kind of uh, shipment, or even plane attempting to go to Israel, to go to the port at Haifa, to go to Tel Aviv, to go to these places. Of course, they've requested permission from the Saudi government to just march to Israel. We discussed that in some previous shows. Saudi Arabia obviously is like, uh, no, considering that the Houthis are actually their enemies, that they are still fighting low-grade insurgencies against with, you know, the U.S. stopped funding that, of course, back in 2022. But the Houthis are full-on launching missiles at Norwegian ships. You know, they've turned the Galaxy Leader, which was that Israeli massive ship that they captured initially, they've turned that into a tourist attraction. And are you know fly you know boating out, ferrying out tourists there to look at I mean, look, I'd be honest, I mean those massive ships I don't I mean I live near Houston, I guess, but I don't live anywhere where I see these kind of enormous ships, and these massive boats that you know are responsible for the worldwide economy effectively, whether it's oil or whether it's you know textiles and and purchased goods I mean this is like the peak of human innovation as far as you know, crossing large swaths of ocean with, you know, tons and tons and tons of millions of tons of goods that, you know, this is sort of the the global economy. These are its, this is its lifeblood, these ships. So I'd be interested in going to one as a tourist. So, you know, no fault to the Yemenis there. But as far as their commitment over these other states, again, Assad in Syria, they're the only, Syrians in a certain factions in Hezbollah are the only ones expressing similar levels of solidarity with the Palestinians but as we see Assad when he mobilizes his army he can't just march on the Golan heights he has to turn eastwards and march on the remnants of the free Syrian army and the remnants of proto-ISIS that are still being funded you know by the United States and Israel so despite you know certain desire among certain neighbors they're they're already tied down with their own domestic you know problems that have been foisted upon them by by Israel and its allies because again Israel has successfully prevented, you know, Arab nationalism from rising. We talk about how Hamas and Netanyahu had a positive relationship against the PLO. And again, I really have no strong perspective on Muslim unity versus Arab nationalism. I guess as a Christian in the region, I would support an Arab nationalist perspective, you know, led by someone like Assad as opposed to a more, a more Islamist perspective that may ultimately come to persecute Christians in the future. But again, does the fact that Hamas got funding from Israel mean that this is all a false flag? No, no such thing. Just in the same way that, you know, groups, you know, just like the Jews in many ways fund these entities that ultimately turn into their golems. We can talk about the Harvard uh, anti-Semitism situation if anybody wants, considering that the three Ivy League schools in America that had non-Jewish presidents are now completely under fire they had that testimony in front of congress where Elise Stefanik you know went crazy performative like you need to denounce anti-semitism and look i have no love for these woke harvard professors that are only you know towing this anti-israel line because of the at the behest of you know their brown anti-white you know student body but at the same time Stefanik and these Republicans, quote-unquote conservatives, are acting as if these students were running around with swastikas saying, Kristallnacht Crystal knocked to, you know, kick the Jews out of America. You know, that's not what anybody was saying. They're saying, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. Israel, Israel, you can't hide. We charge you of genocide. You know, any of these, none of these chants, none of these quotes— have anything to do with actual, frankly, even much of a criticism of organized Jewry itself. These people are honed in directly on the Zionist entity. They would support a more liberal labor government in Israel that maybe is even slightly Zionist and was more open to a two-state solution. You know, This isn't Blood Tribe or the GDL or some crazy anti-Semitic group on campus, but that's how, of course, the Israel lobby and the Zionists want to present it. And now, of course, I believe, who was it? Was it Liz McGill or whatever her name was? The president of UPenn. She's been kicked out. You know, the white lady, obviously, is gone. And now that leaves only two uh, non-Jewish... Uh, she was, of course, replaced by the uh, female Jewish president of the North American Jewish Congress. Like, you know, no no subtlety here, just full-on brazen uh, regime change, you could say, at an elite institution of the United States by the Zionist entity. And of course, Harvard, however, we see is standing by their quote-unquote anti-Semitic president, uh, Claudine Gay, black lesbian. So I think we're seeing why certain people get removed and others don't. And we're really kind of, I guess for lack of a better expression, we're kind of at the the boss fight, the title fight, the heavyweight fight of intersectional power in the United States. Of course, white people have been completely eliminated in the playoffs I'm kind of stealing and Nick Fuentes was making this metaphor about about a sports team. But at this point we're in the finals and it's the Jews versus the black gay people. And it's a pretty tough battle. Of course, Harvard itself seems to be, you know, siding with the with the intersectional blacks, whereas, you know, the rest of America, including most conserv- quote unquote conservative people, are siding with the Zionists. And obviously they got one scalp at UPenn. They're going for Harvard. We'll see what happens at Columbia. But, you know, if this all succeeds, you know, maybe we'll have maybe the Jews will take the clean sweep and have every Ivy League president be a Zionist Jewish person, which, again, if you're going to come on the comments and talk about how we can't say things like Zog and how, you know, talking about Jewish power is a distraction. Like I do challenge you to address the fact that every single Ivy League school in America, which, again, everybody knows there's a pro-Palestine progressive contingent on every college campus. You know, so there's there's no debate about that. Yet at the same time, every elite Ivy League, you know, it has to be somebody that pays deference to Israel, not just someone that pays deference to Israel, an actual Jew, because according to these Zionists, apparently none of these goyim can be trusted to maintain a sufficiently pro-Israel stance. So I find all that very interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that plays a really large role, especially in in this next part because again the the muslims on the intersectionality scale are do rank rank fairly highly except but they're not the highest on that scale and so uh, we definitely see that in appeals to the muslim world you know certain um certain steps can be taken in order to build a relationship with the entire muslim world at once and i think somebody who has really taken that on board seriously, especially since we're still on the subject of Israel and Palestine, has been Vladimir Putin, who personally visited both Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and has met with three presidents all in one, essentially in, I think, uh, two days time, basically, on the 5th and the 6th of December, I believe, very early in December, Putin traveled to Saudi Arabia to personally meet with the Crown Prince, His Highness bin Salman. And so, and of course, that clip emerged where Putin essentially shakes hands and is kind of like even like, gives a high five almost to the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And they sort of like laugh and, you know, carry on. And they probably discussed officially, right? They discussed OPEC and the oil prices. But I think behind closed doors, they definitely discussed the Muslim question of the Middle East. Is the Middle East united? Are they reunited around Palestine? How are they going to deal with this? You know, you can say Jewish Zionist issue in the world, and so you know how is the is the Muslim world even united in these uh you know first world second world countries you can say especially in the around this particular issue, and I think Putin really heavily discussed this only because Russia does have a very large you know Islamic population, so Putin does need to answer you know he does need to travel to these places which the Muslims hold in reverence, and he does need to kind of write back a report to his people at home and essentially explain well, what's happening in the Muslim world? Am I playing a role in it diplomatically? And def- definitely him traveling and speaking to His Highness, the President of United Arab Emirates, MBZ as well, kind of discussing again, officially on the papers, it was officially just a discussion of OPEC and oil and gas prices. But behind the scenes, I'm sure, as most political analysts have already written about, it was most likely just a discussion of Palestine very heavily. And what points towards that is because Putin then met with President of Iran, Raisi, right afterwards, and of course, they discuss Palestine very openly. And of course, the fourth this is the fourth piece of the puzzle, which makes this uh, diplomatic visit very, um, very inclusive, I would say, uh, and very, very similar to the university discussion. Everyone is brought into this particular uh, conjunction because Putin then gives a direct telephone call to Netanyahu himself and lectures him for one entire hour about how to carry. I guess humanitarian warfare and this is funny because putin right obviously he's been uh, lectured by literally the entire western world including uh many second world countries including south africa which you know south africa didn't even invite him or kind of uh, uninvited him to some of the forums happening this year and really told him that look because there's an icc warrant out for you shouldn't be traveling to any of these countries under the icc but putin now is calling netanyahu personally lecturing him about how this warfare happening in palestine is unacceptable and how humanitarian uh, aid needs to be provided to the civilians probably giving some of this personal experience during the second chechen campaign because if anything an analogy could be drawn and i know some people might not like this but i think it should be made definitely for those of you who studied history you can see this the first and the second chechen campaigns are very similar to maybe the campaign that israel is carrying out except the first and second chechen campaigns were quite humanitarian in nature because the russians were trying to preserve both both chechen and Russian civilians while they were, say, sieging Grozny, for example. And it was a very, shall we say, it wasn't that the sieges were perfect, especially the one carried out by Yeltsin. The Yeltsin government was not perfect. It wasn't like the, this, uh, you know, the siege of Mariupol, for example. But it was still, it's it's a very tedious affair, like, you know, a city full of people. How exactly do you take out militants inside? And I'm not necessarily comparing... Hamas militants to the Chechen extreme Islamic extremists. But I think for Putin to make that connection over the telephone to Netanyahu is very important to kind of tell him that, look, Netanyahu, you think you're the big anti-Muslim guy. I've actually fought against real Islamic extremists in the past, and I've dealt with them. And here's how and here's why you're not the real top dog here, because I've actually dealt with my Islamic, so-called Islamic extremist issue at home. And, you know, we've resolved it and there's no more Islamic extremism in Russia, at least at this point. You know, it seems like all the Islamic extremists have moved to Ukraine temporarily. and Now they're fighting on the side of Zelensky in this big intersectional cauldron of degeneracy alongside the neo-Nazis and the LGBTQ. So they're all in one. But most curiously, Putin does. And, you know, maybe unfortunately for some of the people, pro the pro-Palestinian crowd who are still who are seeking to claim that, well, 7th of October and the operation of, of Al-Aqsa flood, it could be you know seen as this uh, liberation of Palestine movement, but Putin did officially call it for the first time a, a terrorist act. So the 7th of October, Putin did call it a terrorist act, and Lavrov actually undermined, uh, not undermined, but he also underlined this as well at the Doha forum, also calling the 7th of October, that particular event, an act of terrorism against Israel, which you know, it, it's kind of unfortunate to hear for us, but it does make sense that Russia is putting its foot down, saying that look, whatever happened with those with parachuters and or you know some of those Israeli civilians and some of those uh, kibbutzes being attacked, that's kind of unacceptable on, on on like what Russia sees as you know acceptable warfare for you know liberation perhaps. Maybe that's a stretch too far, but it doesn't call Hamas a terrorist organization. In fact, Hamas is still unlike ISIS, al-Qaeda and some of these other organizations including some extremist Chechen mm-hmm. ones going back to the 90s. Hamas is still completely legal and allowed in Russia, which also shows that Russia does not see see itself as this anti-Hamas state. It's not like in the US where Hezbollah and Hamas are labeled as terrorist organizations, you can't actually belong to them. In Russia you could actually be a you can run a Hamas, you know, fan club if you'd like. And you will not be prosecuted. So that should be understood. So, you know, people shouldn't take Putin's words too harshly here. He was simply getting the message across to Netanyahu from a position of power after speaking to these major Islamic leaders. But again, Russia is fighting a multi front war here in terms of diplomacy because, again, it is the only force capable of actually, um, you know, actually putting a stop to any of this US expansion, you know, in terms of in, in the Mediterranean and the only one who could maybe even contest with its Black Sea fleet any of this presence. In the Eastern Mediterranean zone, especially given that all of the larger fleets are all belonging to NATO countries here, including Turkey and Greece, as well as uh, some of the Arab countries as well. They're not necessarily NATO, but they're not you know, friendly towards Palestine. So Russia is a really major player here and it definitely needs to play its cards right. And Putin you know, has been trading very carefully, I think, in the game of diplomacy recently.
0: Well, I mean, just listen to how Putin talks to Netanyahu versus Biden. You know, Biden's like, hey, man, stop killing civilians. And Netanyahu's like, uh, remember World War II? <laughs> Which, I mean, I guess that's better than... I mean, it's for the first time, it's not a Holocaust reference. So it's a different World War II reference this time. But, you know, whereas Putin says like, hey, man, this is what you have to do. And look, Putin's laid down the law. Obviously, I think he feels more confident in perhaps speaking firmly and speaking you know, from a position of power to Netanyahu now that he's imposed a better situation on the ground in Ukraine. Because remember, Israel, while they maintained a somewhat outward neutrality, we know behind the scenes there are, you know, thousands of IDF soldiers, you know, and Jewish diaspora, and people even going from Israel to Ukraine to fight against Russia. So, as well as, you know, covert uh, weapons being sent over and all sorts of other... We listened to the previous episode to the show, obviously, we talk about all this stuff. But at the same time, uh, one has to realize that, you know, Putin, if he's not going to completely, if he wants to have influence over the situation in Gaza, he's showing Netanyahu's relationship with all of these now enemy countries. But at the same time, you know, he's showing that he's not 100 percent, like he himself is not a Muslim leader. He is not, you know, ideologically bound, you know, religiously bound to this, you know, total loyalty towards Hamas, which, again, it's a bit disappointing to hear October 7th call the terrorist attack, because, again, I get, we got a lot of hate for this in the comments, but... By literally any definition of occupation or of territorial disputes, I mean it it was somewhat it it was an act of war in many in many regards. As is of course the Israeli response towards you know the Hamas militants themselves, which in no way excuses, however, the indiscriminate bombing of civilians, which within the first three days had surpassed even the highest estimates. I mean of Israeli civilian deaths that had been you know imposed by Hamas. So there's really no Frankly, I mean, look, you're going to say, oh, you're saying Hamas, what they did was okay, but Israel doesn't is wrong. And I'm like, I mean, I'm saying at the very least that one is now objectively worse than the other by any metric, especially calling it terrorism. But at the same time, I mean, you have to think about the relationship between each country. And of course, you know, we love Russia, but of course, Russia does still have that significant you know, I was just in Russia. I had random taxi drivers trying to argue with me about Israel when I said when they heard me and people in the back talking about how I loved Palestine. Then I had other taxi drivers, of course, saying, hey, yo, yo, go Palestine. You know, it was very much like America in that regard as far as split opinion goes. And I, of course, I was able to speak to Dugan. And if you look at some of his more recent posts, I think he took maybe some of what I had to say to heart. But I think there is uh, an understanding in Russia that from a multipolar perspective, of course – Israel now facing this mass resistance is benefiting them. And I think they almost see, I hate to say this, but they would almost see a continued dispute in the region with Israel and the U.S. on one side and the Muslim world on another side overall beneficial to Russia, whether it's from an economic perspective and, of course, obviously an international relations perspective. But that then... You know, you can implicitly understand what I'm saying here about those countries when I tell you why Yemen is then able to go so hard is because it's effectively reported uh, that Yemen has zero Jews inside of its borders whatsoever. And people recognize that though the Houthis only control, I guess, one-fifth of Yemen territory, they have about 95, 90% of the Yemeni population is in the Houthi-controlled territory, of course, the capital of Sana'a and every major city and area. The rest of Yemen is literally an empty desert. So when you when when it's claimed that Yemen attacked Israel and people are like oh it was just the Houthi rebels like no the Houthis are Yemen like they deserve to fly the flag of Yemen like that is the country of Yemen is the Houthi controlled Ansar Allah you know a supreme council or whatever it's called that they have over there it's not the you know Saudi US supported government that rules over nobody and that really uh you know that kind of lets you know what's what's going on over there of course and unless you have anything else to say dmitri i think that we have we've covered our bases on the holy land and it's time to talk about you know the imminent you know territorial concessions of ukraine cuz now that's being talked about by the most mainstream of politicians in america that zelensky needs to be ready to cede some pretty major territory to russia
1: yeah now that we traveled to the den of the beast itself at the moment now that you know the holy land is still not the place where the antichrist reigns at the moment his uh, people, they live in Kiev and they live in Washington DC. So uh, at the moment, that's exactly where their home bases are. And so Zelensky travels naturally to the US to sort of right before the Congress, you know, Congress votes on this massive aid package. And we're talking, I believe it's over $60 billion, which is larger than the military budget of pretty much 95% of most countries in terms of defense spending. And this joint, joint spending bill essentially would Would allocate money to both Israel and Ukraine at the same time. So these two issues are kind of tied. Um, And so essentially, as long as Israel is doing badly or losing, which it's really not. Israel is doing quite fine in and of itself now that it's already received US aid over the last you know, decades and decades onwards. It's already beefed up and powered up to a certain state where it can kind of act independently somewhat, at least for this time. But at the moment, it does seem like Ukraine is very much in need of that aid. And Zelensky travels personally to Washington DC just uh, literally days ago. This is like 12, 13th of December to actually beg <laughs> beg the U.S. Congress and beg Joe Biden to actually intervene and to you know make this happen, make give Ukraine more aid because Ukraine at the moment is at this standstill after the failed counteroffensive of the summer in the middle of 2023. Now that we're at the end of the year, we can kind of look back and say, well, since probably the time of the um, since time of the you can say Prigozhin attempted revolt. Zelensky has been losing machinery, losing equipment, losing tanks to the point where you know the US is still not comfortable anymore of providing any more aid, and even NATO countries and the EU are looking at Ukraine quite skeptically, like Ukraine skepticism. You can say, remember, like there was a term years ago, Euro skepticism. Now Ukraine skepticism is in vogue at the moment in Europe. Most right-wing parties, even anti-Russian ones or even pro-Russian ones, they all agree that. You know, this aid to Ukraine is uh, synonymous with maybe supporting the LGBTQ, even though Ukraine has probably the most far right leaning, some of some of the most far right leaning factions and groups acting like literally inside of the military structures supported by the state, including like active neo Nazis as of battalion members, things like that. So it's this weird golem of ideologies, and naturally, this doesn't necessarily mesh in the in the uh, you know the thoughts and minds of most people. But if you've listened to the episode over the last year, I guess you'll get a good idea of exactly how all of these things coexist in Ukraine. And it's basically because of demonic influence, I would say that in summary, but uh, nevertheless, so in the US, the big question of U- Ukraine's future is being decided actually at the moment. And so it does look like it does look like Zelensky skepticism is quite active in Washington as well. And we do, we do see a split kind of down the middle. Republicans are a bit, a bit more cautious about giving aid to Ukraine, but they're more pro- giving aid to Israel, whereas Democrats are more anti, let's just say, a bit more skeptical towards Israel and more pro giving aid to Ukraine. So we definitely see a congressional split, but whether or not this decision will be made based on Zelensky's visit, I kind of have my doubts, especially given that the uh, the, the fruits, like well, where, are the, where are the results, where are the fruits of this distribution of aid over the last year and a half to Ukraine? Like where has any land been gained back in Zaporozhye, Kyrgyzstan? Well, you can say maybe a few like kilometers at most. If that, I think if anything, I think it, it has been a net loss over the last year. So, um, you know, the results are simply not there to show. And like we're throwing, it's it'll be over 150 billion US dollars at some point next year. So, I mean, this money has essentially gone to waste and it's been called entire, like the greatest money laundering operation since probably, you can say since maybe the Vietnam War or World War II, perhaps since Afghanistan, you can say. But uh, it's definitely going on in full blast in Washington.
0: Well, and as far as I'm aware, Zelensky appears to have recently purchased a, floor, a twenty million dollar mansion in Florida. So we're probably seeing Zelensky's uh, CNN contributor arc, hopefully in the next, uh, maybe in the next years, as he's probably going to flee that country. And again, at this point, the question is, what's that regime change going to look like? We know that, you know, Zelensky, whether there's an election that comes up, or there's just a major military defeat, or there's a fracturing, or there's, you know, perhaps a you know perhaps certain cities start to be taken over by anti zelensky factions you know we see reverse maidan you know something like that where you know people come in from certain areas of ukraine and you know liberate the zelensky you know the uh, the weak zelensky surrendering government for the true you know zaluzhnyi patriot force that's actually going to fight the russians you know maybe we see an attempt at bolstering on the ground preparations for an insurgency against the Russians. That's of course what the US State Department has said from the very beginning, before there even was an invasion of Ukraine, that this would all lead to a low-level, you know, high-intensity, but you know, guerrilla insurgency going on throughout the country against Russian forces. And for a myriad of reasons that is not going to happen. And of course, we see Zeluzny kind of as the only relevant pro-Ukrainian player against Zelensky. But again the question becomes Who's the Russians guy? You know, if somebody comes into power and they want the Russians want somebody to cede as much territory as possible or somebody to perhaps administer a rump state and totally prevent NATO expansion, I have no absolutely no idea who that's going to be. I mean, anybody that was in that position has now fled to Russia, been given away in a prisoner exchange, you know, been killed in some capacity. So there's really no uh, there's no bench, I guess, that we have to look to for this for this role. But at the same time, the other question is, what are these territorial negotiations going to look like? It seems that within almost any day now, whether it's when the ground starts to get soft again or whether it's fully, fully hardened yet, the question is, is Odessa, Nikolaev, are these just going to be marched on by force now that maybe those mass surrenders that Putin and some of these other people might have expected to happen at the beginning of the invasion, maybe those actually happen. you know, maybe that's something that they're banking on as well, or is this all going to be decided, you know, around the round table of of negotiations? Of course, Lloyd Austin, I mentioned this earlier, he seems all in on Zelensky. I hear it's, you know, DOD and CIA with Zelensky, and then like MI6 and State Department with Zeluzny or something like that. I can't remember the exact breakdown of the behind the scenes players and who they're supporting, but it seems that there's a split among the, uh, GAE Zog team on which player they're supporting in Ukraine so we're we're seeing big things happen there and again we've been watching kherson the russians are bombing it heavily we see continued movement towards Evdivka and around bakhmut you know the russians have continued to advance in all those directions and there's even uh, there've been murmurings of some 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 fronts on chasov Yar and some of these other places that have experienced some more rapid troop deployment and at this point, I've seen a lot of videos of fresh Russian troops just behind the front lines, you know, ready to be put into action at any moment, just training, not haggard, clean uniforms, which you're not seeing many of those types of videos out of Ukraine, which, you know, that means we've seen videos of women in the trenches. I've seen a lot more videos of women in the Ukrainian trenches and old people, and obviously the priests keep getting recruited and forcibly conscripted. So it's very unfortunate what's happening, and we're hoping that perhaps some of these regional leaders perhaps might start to see the light and start coming to certain local negotiations with on-the-ground Russian military commanders on their own terms and stop taking direct orders from from Washington and Kiev. But unless you have anything else to uh, to talk about specifically on Ukraine... I think the, uh, well, of course, there's, uh, I'll briefly mention this, we're going to come to him later, but uh, Javier Malay, he seems to be the only, uh, he seems to be Zelensky's top friend right now. You know, Zelensky was at his, his inauguration, he got a new menorah from Malay who embraced him. So, you know, I don't know, maybe Argentina will be deploying on the front lines, maybe that'll be the game changer.
1: Yeah, I guess while we're still on the, uh, on a celebratory subject, even though it is nativity fast, you know, for some religions around the world, it is in fact uh, a time of feasts. And for that particular religion, you know, well, let's just say it, the, the Hanukkah celebrations around the world have been quite interesting. And so it has been a menorah measuring contest in Europe, in Eastern Europe. So the menorah put up by the Hasidic community in Moscow has turned out to be a lot smaller than the one actually that, that has been uh, stood up in kiev and so that has been you know the rabbis of kiev the chief rabbi of kiev the one who recently has also very controversially stated that he doesn't mind the ukrainian orthodox church being uh being persecuted and this is not rabbi asman who is the chief rabbi not of kiev but of all of ukraine he's also said that the menorah in kiev is a lot bigger and so he said even though the lights have gone out in kiev due to russian bombardment the menorah still stands very proudly and so and yes menorahs have been put up in at every single city in Ukraine, so you can definitely see which religion gains preference here. And yes, Malay of course uh, receives a menorah from Zelensky. So there is this global idea that even though Zelensky probably should have gone to Netanyahu and like actually asked him for maybe military aid and given him a menorah because maybe that would have mattered a bit more than the recent uh, potential convert to Judaism Malay, who we'll get to in a moment. Um, you know, and yes, uh, there's very disturbing footage from Ukraine. Now Zelensky personally said that there are six hundred thousand troops. On the front lines right now and in reserves and well, not even reserves he just said front you know serving at the moment Six hundred thousand ukrainians are serving against russia so that's a substantial number you know we're getting to basically we're already past napoleonic times we're getting into crimean war russo japanese war territory and almost in world war one type numbers of armies right if you, you know, if anyone's watched the recent really bizarre and quite uh disturbing napoleon movie like this is how Big Napoleon's army actually got to so 600,000 Zelensky's claiming that's what he has, you know, fighting for him. And these are mostly probably forced conscripts, including young teenagers. There was you know, new footage of uh, teenagers disappearing from foster homes. So, you're talking about 15, 16, 17 year olds. And yeah, you can say, well, back in the day, you know, back during say Napoleonic times, 13 year olds could sign up and fight. But yes, times have definitely changed, and the laws kind of reflect that, and definitely. Using child soldiers is very much in Zelensky's playbook. And I think in the playbook of the globalists who, you know, uh, they do have their own pedophilic appetites, including it, uh, which may include as well sending these young children, especially boys from foster homes to die. So, yes, there are people have been young, young men, young boys, teenagers have been disappearing from foster homes around Ukraine. And, uh, you yeah, know, allegedly they've been sent to reserves and then somewhat these reserves have been shipped to the front lines and sent basically as cannon for the, at the Russians all dressed in full you know whatever uniform they could have you know been given by the ukrainians so definitely there's a lot of disturbing stuff on the front lines especially in you on the ukrainian end including yeah, as you mentioned like the conscription of orthodox priests as well so persecution is uh quite heavy handed in terms of the cities being taken like yes it would be amazing if right before this temporary peace agreement is signed between russia and ukraine which the u.s and nato are really pushing for on the ukrainian side i think some parties at least in those particular western factions are pushing for a peace peace treaty in order just to get get some breathing room for the ukrainian side maybe train some of their pilots some of their uh you know tank engineers people like that It's actually specialists in the field so they don't actually rush all of the equipment to to the slaughter against the russians so they can actually have some time to train i think the cities that probably would be would be you know, return to Russia, and that would benefit the Russian side. It would probably be Kerson, Nikolaev. I mean, those are great, especially considering Nikolaev and Kursk are so close to one another, and they would be really um, quite easy, I think, for Russians to take. That Zaporozhye is a bit of a different story because again, it's right next to that, essentially the capital of Eastern European Israel, so future heavenly Jerusalem, uh, the Dnieper Petrovsk, modern in modern times called the Dnipro. and so would actually Zelensky and his forces, like would Zaluzhny, would uh, Commander Sieroski allow. Allow Russia to actually take Zaporozhye, which is right next door to Dnipro. I don't think so. I think that's a bit of a stretch, even though Zaporozhye technically, that particular city, not the oblast, but the city itself, is already written into the Russian constitution. So um, I think in terms of expansion, Russia would like to naturally take all of Lugansk, all of Donetsk, consolidate these particular territories, and Kyrgyzstan push the Ukrainians out of that particular oblast. But yes, this is a still very much uh very much on the papers as Russia is making incremental very slow and methodical gains as you've said Conrad. like the Russians are very much equipped we see a lot of orthodox priests on the front lines you mentioned Chasov we had like you know pretty epic photos of an orthodox priest standing on a cro- on the crossroads between Odessa and Melitopol and like about 5 kilometers away from Chasov Yar uh confessing a Russian soldier and then you know, giving him communion in in the middle of the crossroads, just outside, not even in church, just because the soldier was being uh, sent to Chrusopyar. You know, so just really powerful footage. So the Russians definitely, you know, venerating God, things like that, and we're seeing that live. Meanwhile, Ukraine is putting around massive menorahs and you know celebrating whichever gods there venerating in in that particular state. So we are seeing a very large difference in in terms of adherence to religion. And Zelensky is like, in terms of symbolism, right? Before I just move on, because we've been on the subject for a little while, but symbolism, just think about Zelensky's portrayal of even Christianity over the last year and a half, like his gift of the icon with the blacked out Christ to the Pope, but obviously satanic, and that's like an image of the Antichrist. And again, Zelensky wearing a black black, uh, robe on Easter, this year when he attends the Orthodox Church and then gives this weird interview where he says, we're praying to Christ for a, v- a victory for Ukraine. And he wears a black, like who wears black on Easter? That's just, I mean, um, unless- And he
0: gets the Theotokos on the fish thing. And yeah, oh yeah, yes,
1: yeah. oh gosh. Yeah. Uh, I don't even, so yeah, the, the, the Theotokos on the flounder. I know that sounds blasphemous because it is. Zelensky receives a dried up flounder fish, which is those uh, flat, uh, you know, in Russians kambala fish and it has a, an icon of, of Mary painted onto the fish. And so it sounds bizarre. It's an art piece, apparently, in Ukraine, uh, in this modern degenerate state of Ukraine, which has been constructed and hailed as this like, progressive like uh, you know, vanguard of world democracy. And this, this was gifted to Zelensky. I mean, just the most blasphemous, sacrilegious things you can imagine in a, in a country, which was, it's essentially one of the heartlands of orthodoxy in the world. And so again, well, we're again. seeing, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, you saw Poroshenko, you know, he's advocating for more persecution of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and everything. So it's, uh, yeah. it's really not going well for Ukraine. And you're right, as far as the city's expansion in Zaporozhia, you know, they're going to get it eventually. It's going to be tough, you know, to get it right now, even in concession. But I mean, I spoke to Victor Boot. He said Odessa will become a Russian city. You know, he... Has been to the front lines semi recently, so that was that was a treat to hear that. But at the same time, you know, again, we talked about you talked about the menorahs, and then we'll I'm going to shoot it back over to you for essekibo because you know we got to get to it. But the uh, the menorah thing, I mean, look, Putin. Again, we know that there's you know we, we 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 our our few critiques you know involve the Chabad, you know community in Russia and their influence and whatnot. But the uh, the Putin talk, I believe he gave such a talk in Red Square, and he actually talked about like. How Jews need to, you know, do more for Russia, and how you know they need to, uh, not who's just, you know, disciplining the ones that you know fled to Israel and fled, you know, against the war in Ukraine and everything. So, again, Putin he's able to speak to Netanyahu and you know these characters and this tribe of people slightly differently than, you know, the U.S. and Western leaders are, especially the Western European leaders. I mean, that's just that's just full slavish devotion.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I think now moving away from the Ukrainian battlefront, which really hasn't shifted much, and Just FYI, Avdiivka is still not taken by the Russians, but the Russians are already like feet on the ground, actually, well into Avdiivka now, and frankly, it, it will fall to the Russian forces any day now. It's completely surrounded almost. So I think now that we're moving into, I guess, one of the battlefronts which we covered for about a month and a half at this point, Venezuela, Essequibo, and Guyana. So Guyana, Venezuela. So this particular referendum, which took place in Venezuela over the territory of Essequibo, has been considered, I guess, one of the most victorious ones, probably second only to, um, I would say the referendum over maybe Crimea, which, uh, one was it 85% plus percent, or maybe it was 90% in 2014, uh, of mm-hmm. Crimea actually joining Russia, which was quite uh, you know quite a majority. But the Venezuelan referendum actually that Maduro held recently uh, came out with a 96% result. So 96% of Venezuelans, at least those eligible to vote, have voted for Venezuela to actually go in with their troops and actually seize the Essequibo rainforest territory as well as the sea territory uh, adjacent to it. And this is this like really resource-rich rainforest territory, if you can imagine it, in the jungles of South America, this is uh, near the Amazon, things like that. So just imagine that particular la- lush mountainous area, just to take it all from this country of Guyana, which, again, is this um, very strange country. Guyana is the only English-speaking country in South America, and it's very much a, I mean, as we've discussed, it's a leftover of British and, you can say, European colonialism. It's a strange country with it's English-speaking, but there are no white people there. And there's no, there's certainly no British people. And it's just a, a mixture of Indians, Chinese folks, Asians, some South Americans, uh, a, a few natives, you can say, but they don't hold any positions of prominence. And it's just this uh, blade runner type society of uh, commercial immigrants, people who came there for money. I mean, they tried to, they tried to get slaves to work there back in the day, but then slavery was abolished by, uh, by the British empire. And essentially they needed to ship people in from all around the British empire in order to run these particular facilities in South America. And so British Guyana turned into, well, I suppose what it is today. And so it's a very strange state when compared to say Venezuela, which is very much has a, like a, you know, you can say socialistic ideology and it definitely has a certain direction. And now it's pushing itself towards Ezequiel and definitely a larger larger military as well. We've compared the militaries of Venezuela and Guyana Guiana and Guyana's military. I mean, it's definitely less than 100,000 people. Meanwhile, Venezuela's military is closing in on the 400,000 mark. And already, in terms of conflict, hasn't been engaged in yet. And in fact, Lula, the president of Brazil, who is also more of, a, I guess, a left-wing socialist, has called for peace talks. And both sides have come to sort of the discussion table and they're both sitting down, not really engaging in combat yet. And both sides, both Guyana and Venezuela are you know coming around and actually discussing, well, where will this new border be drawn? Because this new, there's a new way of dealing, and I think Russia and Ukraine has really set the standard for the world in, in terms of there's a new way of actually disputing territory. You have referendums and then you have peace talks, similar to Minsk agreements, perhaps, which are somewhat upheld. And so, maybe there is a Minsk agreement of sorts coming around in South America probably quite shortly, because again. Even though Guyana has received, uh, you know, US, U.S. aid quite recently in uh, late November, so the U.S. has definitely sided with Guyana here, with the with the weaker party, and U.S. has guaranteed that yes, we'll probably be giving you more aid if you engage in combat with Venezuela. But um, you know, that's not really set in stone at the moment. So Guyana is very keen on perhaps uh, maybe you know sharing some of the territory with Venezuela here. Um, there's definitely a, a lot of things still at play on. Um, the jury's kind of still out on this particular issue.
0: Well, and the question is, did Venezuela feel the need to act because of the contracts and because of the U.S. contractors and companies that would begin exploiting the resources and kind of begin a foot get a foothold that would be hard to remove them from? Or did Venezuela see this as an opportunity with the U.S. so tied down, supporting Ukraine and Israel at the same time, as well as pressuring China and Taiwan? I'd wager it's, I guess, a connection of both in the sense that they realized it's going to be a lot harder and more difficult to, you know, dismantle oil rigs and blow up infrastructure and replace it with our own or have to take it and repurpose it if these corporations go in and actually drill and actually extract the resources as opposed to just, you know, claiming our territory now, you know, dealing with the international consequences and then just being the first ones to exploit these new offshore resources, which, again, that's all this is about. It's about Venezuela having an issue with this Hess, ExxonMobil, you know, Chevron contracts that are going on to extract the LNG and oil offshore from this region of Guyana. And of course, we're seeing how serious they are. For example, the Venezuelan embassy in Suriname, and I think in every other country where Venezuela has embassies, every map of Venezuela has been replaced to include the Essequibo region of Guyana to you know, be a whole part of Venezuela, I mean, just as, you know, Donetsk Luhansk, Karsan Zaporozhia, Crimea are a part of Russia, you know, very similar situation going on here. And again, like Dimitri just explained, you know, the Venezuelan uh, military is over ha- over half the population of Guyana itself in size. So as far as actual military might, this really, again, it's the same situation as in Israel. Without the United States intervention, this would just be a local conflict that does fundamentally get decided by the larger party and the larger military getting to enforce its its terms. It wouldn't even come to war. Guyana would just be like, all right, we're coming to the negotiating table because that would be what they had to do, just like Israel would be like, all right, let's try to work out a two-state solution. But instead, Israel feels confident enough to drag the entire region into World War III, and Guyana feels confident enough to try to, you know, stand up and act like it can actually fight a country with a military the same size as its actual population. So, again, the U.S., And the supposed, you know, hegemon that's supposed to provide peace actually instigating much more violent instability around the world due to their inability to understand, you know, civilizational polarity and the fact that, you know, countries like Venezuela are going to exert influence in northern South America, just like Russia will exert influence in Eastern Europe, just like China will exert, you know, primatic, I guess, influence in the far east of Asia
1: yeah that's right, and at the moment you know as we said, both sides have troops on the ground bordering the esequebo region uh conflict has not begun yet, although a helicopter of of Guyana has gone missing in uh, over the rainforest of Essequibo, carrying uh, six officers as well as the pilot. So it's not quite sure what exactly happened to that helicopter, but maybe it crashed. Again, the territory isn't very well, uh, in terms of it's not very well uh, populated. It's not very well mapped out, and naturally, uh, just as most of these conflicts, these post-colonial conflicts go, nobody really asks the the natives and the tribesmen living in the Essequibo region what their opinion is, right? And this is usually like, I don't want anybody to get upset, but usually when civilizations clash and when these larger, even this is not even a civilizational conflict, right? It's like a small nation state conflict, mostly native folks, people who maybe are more down the food uh, ladder in terms of like technological progress. They don't uh, get asked uh, what their opinions are. Right. So again, I like, like it's similar to the Crimean Tatars weren't exactly asked by Ukraine, whether or not they want to be Ukrainian or Russian. And it may be uh, smaller tribesmen and members of, of Russia, you know, they do play a part, but again, Russia is a democracy. So their particular minority vote doesn't necessarily decide whether or not the SMO goes on, takes place or not. So again, it's, it's just how, how the world works. So smaller parties really don't really get an opinion. And so the natives in the Essequibo region, perhaps they could be living in a potential war zone and their lifestyle may be uh, encroached upon by either these uh, massive oil companies and gas companies brought on by Guyana's contracts, or perhaps by, you know, either mercenaries from Guyana or either the forces of Venezuela. Nevertheless, life is about to change uh, very quickly, I think, if... They don't come to an agreement with Brazil being kind of the intermediary here, and I think like while we're on the subject of Brazil, we do need to mention like Lula, uh, you know, being a being a sort of strong member of BRICS has really changed the game. I think BRICS has definitely moved ahead as, as sort of as sort of the the great uh, achiever of 2023. And just as we move to the next subject, the uh, South American scapegoat, this b- bizarre country of Argentina. Now that the um, now the president-elect Malay has been officially made pre- official president, and has sworn. Pay attention here. He has sworn on the gospel to uphold the laws of Argentina, and this is a recent convert to Judaism. Has sworn on the gospel to again, you know, to uphold the constitution of Argentina and to duly, you know, commit his duties as president of the country. So again, it's the two-faced. Not sure what this particular, uh, you know, hypocrisy is from President Millay, but again, I think we'll discuss him quite in depth at this, mo- at this moment here.
0: Well, I mean, he has to have been aware of just how how aware people made the world of his weird philo-Semitism. And despite all of that, you know, I mean, he's like a crypto guy, you know, he's online. He's seeing the global conversation about him and his weird obsession, you know, with Chabad and going to visit Rebbe Schneerson and what everyone was saying about that. But did that stop him from giving Zelensky a big hug and a menorah as, like, his fir- the first thing he does as president? No, it does not. So it shows you, you know, he definitely views whatever black magic benefits, you know, he's getting from this, you know, extreme association. You know, he views that as outweighing, you know, optics, I guess you could say. <laughs> because, again, like, whether it's on X in the middle of, like, you know, the info war and everything, you know, Alex Jones back on Twitter and everything. And we know, you know, Alex Jones is a bit you know more on the Zionist side of things but regardless the, the the conversation is being is being broadcast you know anti-zionism is you know splitting the democratic party and the republican party all of their young people have no interest in this you know religious shilling for israel so it's being very much brought to the fore of you know again this conversation in 2016 was you know relegated to the dark corners of 4chan and and pre you know 2017 twitter but now it's, you know, at the forefront of X, which in, and these other and Rumble and these other platforms that are really exploding in popularity. And even, you know, things like the Great Replacement are being talked about by like Vivek Ramaswamy of all people on the debate stage and the GOP, which no more GOP debates because, you know, Trump's just mm-hmm. running away with it. But going back to Venezuela and Essequibo, of course, this is one of those things where there's U.S. proxies all around in places like Colombia obviously Guyana itself, and then just over the border of Suriname is French Guyana, which is literally just France. Like, in theory, you could say this war is happening only a hundred or so a few hundred miles away from the borders of France, because it technically is the borders of the European Union. Because if you go to French Guyana, you enter the European Union, you know, just fun geography information there. But yeah, this is, again, just kind of a conflict that's a fundamental holdover from the division of the Guyana region, which is, you know, Guyana, Suriname, French Guyana, the regions of Brazil and Venezuela that surrounded was all a important mandate, you know, during the early exploration of this region. And then now, still to this day, now very, very large amounts of natural resources are about to be extracted from there. So that very much, you know, draws a similarity to the Middle East, which, again, we take a more civilizational angle and see the energy wars as a very important node of civilization. And that is, you know, that is very true. In this case, it's a sort of, you know, somewhat South American civilization ultimately against the U.S., you know, unipolar, you know, system that has imposed itself in the region. So that's, of course, the analogous parallel there. But unless you have anything else about Essequibo Guyana, I guess we need to talk about, you know, there's the U.S. election. I just discussed it a bit. Trump really running away with it against Biden and against his GOP opponents, but in Poland, uh, things have gone the other way. Donald Tusk back in power, and, you know, that's, that's not good for based Poland heads, but at the same time, you know, was based Poland really that based? I mean, they already were willing to let in all these, all these immigrants very recently, and they were the biggest supporters of Ukraine, so obviously Donald Tusk sucks, you know, he's a major, you know, tier one globalist, but I guess we'll see how, how different things really get.
1: Yeah, I think in terms of elections happening around the world, we've definitely had, um, I think in a few days, actually, it'll be confirmed if Ukraine will be holding an election in March, April next year, actually. So I think it's literally um, 15th, 16th of December when that gets decided by the high rather of Ukraine. And of course, the in, in Russia, the election has already been announced for March, so the beginning of Great Lent. And the, the election, naturally, it, the beginning of it actually does fall on some pretty notable feast days, which we'll talk about in some future episodes, which you know it does fall on the beginning of the February revolution as well, which is quite notable, I think. And Putin did say he'll be running again. So there's a lot. The 2024 is kind of the year of elections. And so I think projecting if we do have like a, a forecast episode for the next year, the things we'll be predicting, I think there'll be definitely a lot of uh, election results, and maybe these elections you know, coming up, including you know some parliamentary elections all over Europe, including uh, you know Ukraine, Russia. Maybe these elections will be a deterrent for those countries engaging in any sort of extreme, extreme affairs in terms of geopolitics as well as foreign policies. But um, nevertheless, I think we'll uh, we'll see where that. Where that thing goes necessarily. At the moment, the forecast is President Putin will be running again for, I believe, the next six-year term, which I think we fully support given that at the moment, while the country of Russia is at war, it doesn't seem like a wise idea to be switching up presidents given that the oppositionary parties, um, like the second largest party, the Communist Party of Russia, doesn't necessarily look like it, uh, it has any candidates, including Zhuganov doesn't really look like he's going to be running anymore. And uh, it, it doesn't seem like Z- you know, Shudinovsky is not with us anymore. And the other leader from LDPR is no longer, um, you know, the, the the man in charge of Elder Poer is not really interested, I think, in running for the presidency. Well, hasn't
0: Navalny disappeared from prison? Oh, has, right. Isn't that, that we well, forget,
1: there's a Spartacus story happening, right? So Navalny, the, the prisoner, the LGBTQ liberal prisoner of Russia, has disappeared from his prison in Siberia, right? So he hasn't been seen. For, for a few weeks now, allegedly. And so the story is that he potentially could have enlisted, which are, if you recall, like about a year ago, Vergozhin did invite him to join the Wagner prisoner brigades, but he you know, politely refused. And so now Navalny has disappeared. Could he have been recruited into one of the prisoner brigades and sent to the front lines? And could this be Navalny's Spartacus story arc, where he fights for, you know, he fights for his freedom, or, you know, gains it back and then runs for it? The Russian presidency. I'm not sure if he can run for the Russian presidency. You know, being a former felon or even like a a convict of sorts. I'm not too sure. Not not too familiar with those particular election laws in Russia. But nevertheless, very very interesting things are transpiring there. But yeah, looking at Europe at the moment, like Viktor Orbán, very strongly, very strong Ukrainian skeptic, you know, holding strong in the in the country of Hungary. We have Zelensky again you know, allegedly will be running but you know his his opponents like poroshenko for example will probably be running against him again and so ukraine is not looking like it'll resolve anything through its elections nevertheless you know will russia influence these elections in any way and also the the like the actual oblasts right on the ground like who will participate in whose elections so zaporozhye is cut in half so will all the will the people in occupied Zaporozhye, will they have the ability to vote for President Putin, or will they be able to participate in the Ukrainian elections? There's a lot of these, I guess, logistical questions on the ground, which may not be that interesting to the listeners, but I think we'll, it'll be very curious how they exactly play out next year.
0: Yeah, no, I think all that's very interesting, actually. It's the kind of thing we want to talk to more people on the ground there, are people that have been able to, I was, you know, I spoke to some people in Russia that had been there recently, and it was very, very fascinating stuff. But I think, again, in Poland, while unfortunately their right-wing, quote-unquote right-wing, you know, the Law and Justice Party, which has ruled for, what, six, seven years in Poland, they finally, despite the fact that they themselves might still be the biggest party, the oppositions were all able to form a, a unity government and elect Donald Tusk, you know. It's strange saying that. It sounds so much like Donald Trump, but he's, he's a major globalist. And, of course, is probably going to continue, you know, the great replacement in Poland and whatnot. But there's still a white pill coming from coming from Poland, and that, and that is our good friend uh, Grzegorz Braun, you know, leader of the KKP, the monarchist right-wing Poland party known as Confederacja, which, unfortunately, very much underperformed in these latest elections. I don't know. These Eastern European elections, I'm not really you know remember the, what was it the estonian election or the latvian election where they just totally rigged they just like totally rigged it at the last minute when it looked like a more pro russian like a slight like was going to actually do well in the parliament and that there might have to have been a new uh a prime minister i can't remember what it was the u.s like i'm forgetting the details but the u.s literally called it in basically it was it, it was irrefutable but you know we have uh grigors braun he uh decided that a menorah with a picture of Rabbi Schneerson in a sort of Hanukkah, Chabad Lubavitch celebration had been set up at the Sejum, which is, I don't know how to say it, is it Sejum is the Polish parliament? I think that's that's how it's said. He, he decided to, you know, take matters into his own hands, and I guess he saw it as a fire hazard, and, you know, that's a serious thing, I guess. So he took his fire extinguisher and extinguished the menorah and then took to the the front of the sejum and said that we will have no Talmudic, racist, Jewish supremacist, you know, genocidal, uh, I guess, monuments in the Sejim. They have no place here. And he said that he doesn't want the Polish people to be, uh, to be implicated in the genocide of Palestinians. And this was, you know, this was a based and red-pilled moment. You know, the, the fire extinguisher has become a, a new hate emoji, I guess. I'm sure we'll see it on the ADL list shortly. And I'm sure there'll be a, this will be contributed to the this will be just another uh, point in the worldwide epidemic of anti-Semitism that we've seen sweep the world ever since October seventh, or they, that they would have us be convinced of.
1: I, I need to mention this real quick because this kind of just broke actually. If you recall, in December last year, so exactly one year ago, in Germany, uh, Prince Henry the Thirteenth of Verois was actually arrested for alleged conspiracy against the German government. Now he has been officially charged for conspiracy and for planning to overthrow. The uh the German Federation, so the entire country, him and twenty-seven people. So Prince Henry the first, and remember he relate he's also related to some Russian dynasty. So this German prince, right, Prince Henry, uh Prince Royce has has in fact been charged. And listen to some of the you know, alleged charges, the description, right? So one year he's been held in custody as charges being prepared, and now the German uh, attorney general has presented these charges on him. Allegedly he was planning to To find underground tunnels under the Bundestag, plan political assassinations, was following various conspiracy theories from the QAnon movement, looking for tunnels again all over Germany where the global elite was hiding children and the miners and all these uh, you know these 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 slaves of the global elite in Germany were going to be freed by Prince Royce as well as his twenty-six co-conspirators, and uh, you know. And there would be an alliance formed of both terrestrial and allegedly this is according to these documents supernatural fighters. And these German these German this German freedom alliance that he would form would be called the citizens of the Empire. So Reichsburger. So this is their far-right movement that he led. And this Reichsburger, the citizens of the Empire, would be uh would free all these children and overthrow the government in Germany. So again, he's been charged with like the you know, essentially what January 6th was, you know, in terms of like, it's, you know, January 6th was obviously fake, but Prince Royce was charged with literally conspiracy to overthrow the German government. Very interesting. Probably more of this will be revealed in a few more days, but yeah, this is breaking news from Germany. So again, very interesting developments as, as the world is waking up to certain questions about certain people. And now finally the German in Germany itself, as well as, you know, in Poland, I think a lot of people are actually awakening to the fact that, look, uh, not everything is, you know, right in the first world, especially in European countries where people live in luxury, there are things happening behind the scenes, which are both disturbing and quite secretive, you know, not, not everything is what is is that meets the eye. It gets really conspirological and people are, you know, people planning things, let's just say.
0: Well, it's good you bring that up. I saw those posts about the progress in the Prince Royce trial as well, which, you know, we covered on the show, you know, more than more than others would. It kind of falls within our monarchist realm of interest. But it's good that you said that because you can draw a good uh it's a good comparison and to draw I guess a connection there with the Confederacia situation and the Grigor Zbrand thing. Because remember the KKP or Confederacia, they're a right wing monarchist, actually pro-Russian party in Poland. And one of their not just are they pro-Russian, they are very anti-German. But I'm wondering if they would be still so anti-German if they saw, you know, a return to a, I mean, I guess the Poles and the Germans have always been somewhat enemies, but I'm wondering what the, how they would feel about about the Reichsburgers. And of course, everything you said, it sounds to me like the German state is probably using a few examples of group chat banter and other things to then basically criminalize every kind of cons- large-scale conspiracy or right-wing online moot, because none of these people in Germany can organize IRL, so it's all just like kind of online, you know, the Germans have a lot of a lot of the biggest anti vax, you know, anti COVID people were from Germany. A lot of these uh you know, of course we all remember you know, people like Ernst Zundel and other such, you know, you could say hero <laughs> you could say heroic characters of the of the German diaspora who've had to flee their homeland due to oppressive, uh oppressive, you know, speech codes and whatnot. But it sounds to me like this is basically the German, you know, Justice Department and of course their their bizarre office of the Constitution, which effectively only exists to enforce hardcore restrictions on any form of right-wing thought in Germany exclusively because of, you know, the whole I guess Hitler thing. They basically are kind of using this to set a precedent to criminalize any right-wing conspiracy, any sort of monarchist sentiment, any sort of at all patriotic sentiment. Again, these people, you know, they weren't Third Reichists, you know, they were Second Reichists, which I guess that doesn't have as that doesn't have as much of a bad taste in in the mouth of the world community who, you know, grew up on you know Schindler's List and and Inglorious Bastards no one no one knows what the Second Reich even is but I guess they have to now set this precedent so that anybody associated with that or nostalgia for the German monarchy is also just as bad as Hitler you know that has to be that has to be stated but you know we saw Gregor's Braun after his you know anti menorah display when he shut that down he's now been you know he was expelled from the building and he's been uh his for three months, his salary's been cut in half. He had his bonus taken away. He, you know, he was slapped pretty hard. I guess they can't just expel you. And at the same time, you know, a sort of, again, in Eastern Europe in general, there's sort of a more casual anti-Semitism that's sort of under... Like, you know, at the same time as there's no such thing as, like, there's none of this mass, you know, organized, underground sort of anti-Semitic movements much. That's not as much of a thing. There's more of just a kind of culturally understood... You know, general anti-Semitism. You could say, or just a sort of awareness of the influence of of Jewry around the world. That's not really a thing in the West. You know, it's either you're either you're secretly talking about what's going on, what's really going on with Israel, or you're just a full-on kind of sheep. Whereas in other parts of the world, it's more kind of a it's more just commonly understood. You know, it's just kind of a part of the understanding of the world, which I think is a big a big difference. But when it comes to uh Legacies, I guess, of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth or the German Empire, any of these these old things. We're seeing, you know, what some are calling a horribly medieval reversion by by the Russians, and that is the Uniates being banned in Zaporozhia. Dimitri, you might have you might have more knowledge there than me.
1: Yeah, very interesting. So in Zaporozhia, so the Zaporozhia Oblast, not the city itself, the Zaporozhia Oblast, which is part of the Russian Federation that particular local government has officially banned the Roman Catholic Church or its unit iteration so officially anyone labeling themselves as a greco uh, i think it's the full name is something like greco roman uniate catholic church of ukraine something like that it's quite a lengthy name but that particular institution... Listen, the
0: ukrainian greek the ugcc the ukrainian yeah. greek catholic church
1: yeah that's right it's, it's it's like a real mouthful especially since especially in russian and in ukrainian when they attempt to translate the full title but like those hierarchs right it's just to give some perspective those hierarchs have been in complete support of not just the, some of the neo-nazi far-right movement and i don't mean to say this with any sort of like you know, we we know who these particular people are and who they're funded by or which particular oligarchs, but nevertheless these groups existed in Ukraine since 2013 and 14. They've been spurred on by these Roman Catholic by this Roman Catholic Church. And I'm not sure how active it is in Zaporozhye. There's probably a few parishes here and there, probably a few community centers at most, because mostly this church, as we've mentioned in our AFER episode, discussing the UNIA and discussing the Union Movement, the Union of Brest Litovsk, this particular movement has emerged in mostly western ukraine and not you know Zaporozhye is very very well past the dnieper in the east and so Zaporozhye is not very catholic dominated at all so in fact exactly how many catholics will be discriminated against i'm not too sure probably not that many frankly so most of the outrage online is exactly that online on the ground you probably won't hear about any roman catholic you know parishes being raided by russian troops or anything anything as absurd as what you see in Ukraine itself where you know local orthodox churches are being closed raided by you know SWAT things like that it's just absolutely crazy persecution is not exactly what's happening in Zaporozhia at the moment and the you know what were the reasons what was the justification of the local russian government well it was not the fact that this church community this uh, these units, roman catholics have been cooperating so heavily with the ukrainian state and this is completely believable by the way because they have been at the forefront of not just the entire Mike Pompeo schism building with the uh the false schismatic church of epiphany as well as filaret dumenko and also they've you know collaborated in all kinds of ecumenistic things of that nature since at least 2016 17 18 but they've also been involved in supporting the ukrainian military actually allowing them to house and store munitions in western ukraine as well as in eastern ukraine allegedly as well and so zaporozhia you know the government has stated that look this church organization has co- collaborated and cooperated with the Ukrainian state for over a year now because the order if you have a look at it it has been drafted in 2022 so exactly December last year so it's it's taken the Zaporozhye local government exactly one year to kind of justify its banning of this uh, organization it wasn't just a snap decision that the Russians made it was something that they came to after a long sort of contemplation given the military and mind you, Zaporozhye is in a very, this is like the, this is the front line, you can say, you know, besides Donetsk, it's the, it's the hottest zone. This is where Ukraine has sent 300 plus mechanized, you know, mechanized tanks like headfirst at the Russian side. They they were like rushing towards Melitopol. This is where the and defense lines are standing. There's still a military curfew in Zaporozhye where everybody needs to go home by 8 PM at night, including like, you know, churches need to have their Vespers and Madden services earlier. So everybody is living under military curfew laws here, not just, you know, Roman Catholics or you know Orthodox Christians are also living under curfew laws because there is a there is an alert all over the this particular area. So it's not like it's probably one of the most one of the least safest zones. And so we we take all these things into consideration and the fact that the Russians have taken it one entire year to institute this particular restriction. And in fact it has been you know it has they've they've put their foot down and Roman Catholicism basically will cease to exist at least for a time in this particular region. And so, uh the fruits are probably positive because there's no reason for the pope and his influence especially, you know, his influence being very pro-zelensky, pro-zog, pro, you know, uh, you know, as we've seen all over Europe at the moment there's some real controversies in terms of Roman Catholicism. Russians do not need any of that on their territories. So, again, I think spiritually as well, it's probably a good idea to rid the Russian land of heresies, at least in the soft form, beginning maybe from Zaporozhye. I'm not saying that Roman Catholics should be persecuted. That's not even in the tradition of the Russian empire or even Russian history, but it it will be setting a message that, look, Roman Catholics do not collaborate with this Ukrainian government. It is criminal. So I think that's the main message here.
0: I mean, and look, the UGCC is effectively a, a hostile NGO. I mean, I would say the Ukrainian Greek Catholics themselves and their bishops are more hostile than Pope Francis. Like, I mean, they're full on. Like, you know, this is the le- this is the legacy of like you know Kunsavich and these people that we've talked about. I mean, listen to our listen to our Union of Brest episode of Ether Hour. Where it kind of gets into this. So this is these aren't just your peaceful you know Roman Catholics just trying to. You know, preserve their filioque in peace. These are, you know, in my opinion, these are people that a huge part of their identity is insanely anti-Russian, anti-Orthodox. So I, I view this as no different than you know banning a Soros NGO, which is everybody supports when it's in Hungary or anywhere else. So you know, that's my perspective. You can, sorry, Catholics, you can you know see it in the comments, but that's that's my perspective. I'm not a I'm not just a 21st century liberal with strong religious opinions. I'm just a medieval religious zealot. Like that's just how it is. So. You know, take it or leave it, right? But we're after we're reaching the end of the show here. We gotta discuss a few things though. I mean we've seen Patriarch Bartholomew, he's basically declared himself the Eastern Pope, which is a black pill, but then on a white pill we've seen Cyril Hovoron, totally removed finally by the Russian Orthodox Church, you know, took way too long, but we finally saw it. And then final white pill we've seen, we're seeing Evgeny Rodionov being venerated in Serbia. Dmitry, could you maybe fill us in on all of those and we can go back on that and then we'll wrap this thing up.
1: In a small in the small town of Shid on the border of Croatia and Serbia, actually, uh, and the baptismal cross as well as an icon of Yevgeny Rodzianov was brought over by Yevgeny Rodzianov's mother, and so you know to to the Serbian jurisdiction of of the Serbian Orthodox Church. And you'd think, well, I guess this is a new martyr from Russia. Really, how much veneration will he receive in Serbia? Well, like the deputy defense ministers were there, you know, admirals, Serbian generals, and you'd be like, wait. Serbia has admirals, considering it doesn't you know, border the sea. Yeah, Serbia has admirals. There's probably people in retirement as well, going back. Serbia, I don't think, has a navy at all, unfortunately, due to its disconnection from Montenegro geographically. But um, nevertheless, I, you know, Serbian people have greeted the the icon and the baptismal cross and and you know you the significance of the baptismal cross as a relic is very important because this is the same cross that the Chechen Muslim extremists attempted to get him to take off in order for him to renounce Christ and and this is the particular cross that the soldier and new martyr, Givgeni Rozdol kept on him and he said no they're going to betray Christ and he was tortured and eventually beheaded by the Muslims and nevertheless his his legacy lives on now in, in in immortality and he's with god and now his, uh, his veneration was so broad that in this particular small town over 500 people were stayed for this very large feastful coffee hour afterwards you could see like ministers officers clergy from both serbian uh you know Ser- serbians from croatia as well as serbia itself because the town was so sort of strategically placed i guess uh for this particular event that um both sides venerated Evgeny Rajoyanov quite broadly. And for those of you, you know, we, we did see some comments. People are stating that, oh, Evgeny incident isn't officially canonized. But, I mean, guys, come on. He's a new martyr. He was literally killed by Islamic extremists. I think if anyone reads his the miracles associated with him, you know, related to him, uh, quite numerous at this point, including most streaming icons, I don't think it's dis- disputed by anybody that Evgeny Rajoyanov is very broadly a venerated saint. And I think this is more evidence to that. And the bishop of... Uh, the bishop of, this, of the local city was also their Bishop Basil. He's from the Serbian jurisdiction. He was leading the liturgy, and the entire liturgy, the icon of Yevgeny Rodionov, who is an officially canonized saint, was standing in the middle of the church for all to venerate, So, along, alongside his baptismal cross. So I think a very special day for the entire Orthodox church, because again, Yevgeny Rodionov during his life might, may have only been a Russian soldier during the regime of Yeltsin in Russia, so just the, a young Russian lad, I think 18 or 19 years of age. But now he's an Orthodox saint for the entire world, and you can say the entire universe as a whole, even for those in heaven and, of course, those not yet born. He's open for veneration to everybody, regardless of race, creed, or you know, descendants. And I think it's a very special day, and I think uh, Serbia kind of, is leading the way towards his broader canonization, which is
0: great. Once again, the Serbs doing what the Russians are too afraid to do, venerating Yevgeny Rodinov, you know, I mean, St. Herman's Monastery in America is under the Serbs now, so there's debate about maybe they will, you know, I mean, the Serbs have basically said, like, we're just waiting for the Russians, you know, we already consider Father Seraphim a saint, but they think it's, you know, appropriate for the Russians to do it, and of course, you know, the Russians dragging their feet, you know. That's that's one thing we on the show have, you know. If there's one thing we are Greco files of on the show, it's you know the the canonization process. You know, the EP, they they kind of have that one down. The Russians are kind of figuring it back out again, I guess. It takes a take It takes a while, you know. And we have no problem with prudence on 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 these canonizations, but there are certain people, you know, whether it's Father Seraphim Rose or like a new martyr, Yevgeny Rodionov, you know. You wait thirty forty years. I mean, I think it's safe, especially with these miracles. You know, you're pretty you're pretty safe to be able to say that. But we also saw from an Orthodox Times article, you know, Patriarch Bartholomew, Dmitry, maybe you you can maybe say some of the actual quotes. I don't have it pulled up here right now. It was some of the most, you know, bizarre. I mean, every priest on Twitter, you know, everybody from Antiochian to OCA to obviously the Russians, you know, have been saying this, you know, we're saying this is, you know, egregious. This is obviously, you know, this is what we knew. He'd been saying the whole time, and then he just comes out and says it, kind of things. Of course, Patriarch Bartholomew is basically asserting, you know, very, you know, very papist-sounding, you know, prerogatives towards his own see. Let's 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 get to that, and then we'll we'll wrap this up.
1: Yeah, mind you, this was a sermon, and most sermons, of course, are given to everybody in the church, right? So naturally, for lay lady as well, who are you know, they're not exactly the most theologically educated. So it's you can't just say, oh, it's it's for theological experts, you know, don't. Don't try and interpret it, you you, you lame and fool. Okay, but this is is what Patriarch Bartholomew said, okay? Unfortunately, I'll have to read the direct quote. Hence, from Asia Minor, we proclaim in every direction that the genuine and only mother church is the great church of Constantinople. It exclusively bears the legacy of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for all humanity, giving birth to numerous churches from Bulgaria to Ukraine. This declaration isn't a modern invention in ecclesiology, but an experiential truth and legacy inherited from the fathers of the ecumenical and local synods. It is not a theoretical assertion, but a continuous blessed act of the church that bestows upon Constantinople the privilege of crucifixion's of the crucifixion sacrifice, the path of sacrifice, and the position as the head of all churches. It consistently bears the crown of thorns, symbolizing the despotic passion. Well, there's a lot a lot can be said about this, but first and foremost, notice he says, even at the beginning, we can already we can point to all the mistakes made in this statement and how uh, bizarre it is, and how, how it's just borderline heretical. Which essentially, I think, uh, as a lot of the priests online have agreed, and maybe even the um, some of the clergymen listening to this show—deacons, priests, uh, you know, psalm psalm readers in church, well minor clergy, even, maybe even bishops—you may agree this is a very strange statement because you know we have read the canons of you know the ecumenical canons over the years. Myself and Conrad as well, you know, we we are very familiar with the role of the ecumenical patriarchate as this court of appeals. This ecclesiast- ecclesiastical court of appeals for all churches and its uh, position of honor in the diptychs and know uh, position of honor in terms of you know being the at at the head of the, of the former empire things like that and having an emperor seated in Constantinople it did have all of those prerogatives but this is a step in in some next direction also mentioned it mentions giving birth to numerous churches from Bulgaria to Ukraine I mean not a single saint alive between the 800 and 1500 AD ever used the word Ukraine. Okay. So just, I'm giving you a heads up. Ukraine did not exist in any of the lives of saints in any church history books. Nobody knew what Ukraine was back then. It was called Russia, Rus, which those two words are synonymous and used the same in all texts. You'll see that Greek and Russian alike. So again, you know, Patriarch Bartholomew painting a very strange, you can say political uh, statement, but but this is not just the political statement here. This is this entire to these two paragraphs that I've read to you, they've had, they have very strong. Uh, it's, it's a very strong theological statement, which is completely false, and as I said, borderline heretical. I think that's the judgment most of us can make about the statement itself, and whether or not we want to judge the figure of the patriarch himself, I don't think that's my prerogative. But my church, being the being the Russian Orthodox Church, we don't commemorate him in our diptychs. We don't commemorate Patriarch Bartholomew at our liturgies. And so that's the position we stand on.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is just neo papism, kind of out the gate. Of course, of course, we have the the usual suspects on Twitter playing the fool. Like, what do you mean? This is this is just something. It's this is just a it's an honorific prerogative that has been, you know, maybe the language is a bit flowery. It's like no, like I mean, we know what's going on here. We we saw the the autocephaly completely, you know, given to the schismatics. They think they have that prerogative. They think they're in the right there. Of course. They recognize the quote unquote, you know, Macedonian Orthodox Church Ohrid Archdiocese, but they don't recognize the Serbian Tomos of Autocephaly that the Macedonians actually accepted. So again, this is they are out of touch with the current actual working of ecclesiology and of the Holy Spirit that is actually going on in the Church. I mean, they didn't have anything to do with the reunion of Jerusalem and Antioch, the resumption of communion between those two ancient sees, and of course, I mean, this this assertion that basically all you know, all authority and all of the root of these churches comes from from Constantinople. I mean, I just have to wonder what about what about Cyprus? You know, a very brotherly church to all the you know, the some possibly an even more Greek church than the Greek church itself. You know, we have the Cypriots, and they gained autocephaly and an ecumenical council from Antioch. So I'm wondering, you know, as, again, it seems to be that Patriarch Bartholomew thinks of himself as both the emperor and the patriarch as he seems to have the prerogative of what an ecumenical council called by an emperor can do despite the fact that there is no empire there is no emperor and there is no ecumenical council i don't consider crete 2016 to be an ecumenical council i don't think most people listening i know people that went to it that uh don't consider it an ecumenical council for a myriad of reasons and of course in the antiochian church we uh have nothing to do with it so that's pretty safe to say and you know that was a little you know that was a bit of a esoteric uh not esoteric, but a bit of a an in depth ecclesiastical uh, rabbit hole. But and do you have anything else to say, Dmitri, before we let everybody go? You know, we've got the Q and A coming up. So,
1: yeah, that's right. I think if anyone has any questions regarding uh, re- regarding the ecumenical councils and maybe what they have to say exactly about, you know. The patriarch of Constantinople's position in the church. You can definitely ask it during the a hour. I think we can break that down in depth. But I think um, definitely looking forward to the Q and A. Usually the Q and As are just such such great times where we can discuss most of the most issues which we don't have time to talk about because the news is so is so full on these days. Literally every week, or you know, at this point. This episode is coming out almost after a two and a half week hiatus, so there's just so much news to speak about. We don't get time to discuss some of the more in-depth, maybe esoteric and theological, historical, or even uh, even secular you know, su- subject matter. So I think it'll be a great time to kind of maybe even flesh out some of these theological or um, ecclesiological questions. So feel free to ask questions, including any clergy you listening, if you have any questions about ab- about the church, or even if you have any like even any any particular feedback you want to give us. You feel free to message us at any time. I think our, our message boards are, are always open. Me and Conrad are very receptive and we will be answering all questions uh, in the coming Q&A. And if we don't, again, answer the questions verbally, we will respond in text adequately, just like in the previous q and I think it's a good tradition to build on.
0: Yeah, of course. If we don't, sometimes it's easier to quickly answer it over text. And like I said, if we don't get to it, we tried our best to give you some paragraphs. If we just run out of time in the episode itself, but yeah, be sure feel feel free to ask me anything about my trip to Russia. It's fun. It was a bit. I saw all sorts of things. You know, it was pilgrimage as well as you know World War Now business type trips. So very very big things happening. And of course, you know, talk to some great people. And it's good to be back though. Covering the news every week. World War Three. You know. Here we are, although getting into the Christmas season as well. So hope everybody is, you know, cozy and celebrating, you know, and hopefully they're going to spend time with family and, you know, celebrate the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Of course, on the new calendar, it's coming sooner than on the old calendar. But regardless, you know, tis the season. And I recommend everybody, you know, visit Moscow in December. It's, I think, the best time to visit, actually. And so with all of that, worldwarnow.co. Remember, that's our new URL, so it works. It's a little better than worldwarnow.substack.com. That one will still work. So, you know, if you have that ingrained in your head, because I've said it a bajillion times, you know, it will redirect. But worldwarnow.co, if you're going to post one of our links, please do that. It is no longer shadow banned on Twitter. So that helps us get a lot more reach. We can, you know, go viral more easily with the Substack content. So be sure to share all of that. Obviously, follow us on Twitter, worldwarnow. We've been getting some great uh, engagement and some good you know, results and replies on our posts, so be sure to check that out. World War Now, Telly, the Telegram is always the best backup to have, you know, we're never getting banned on Telegram. Uh, World War Now on Rumble, World War Now on YouTube, you know, subscribe, you know, hopefully we'll be doing some more live streams perhaps at the beginning of the new year, that's something we really hope to do and, you know, get the super chats going and answer more, do the Q&A but more live and, you know, have images up and be able to look at maps and stuff like that, that's stuff we enjoy very much as well. So with all of that, you know, subscribe, World War Now, get behind the paywall, listen to all the episodes of Ether Avro. We've got the Q&A coming up. If you become a supporter, you can ask us a question. That'll be linked below. And with all of that, uh, thank you so much for listening and God bless.